0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7. We're kind of in the middle of a complex section in the book of Daniel. And this chapter that we're going to be looking at really could be called the climax of human history. Um, a couple years ago, UGov put out a survey Asking people, what will most likely cause the apocalypse? And of course, the answers that were put forward were very interesting. 28% said nuclear war. Obviously, that's uh, entirely plausible. 16% said climate change. 2% said zombies. <laughs> always got to worry about those Zombies. said alien invasion. It's kind of a pessimistic view of aliens, I guess. 16% said Judgment Day. And you're not talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in his movie. Um, 9% said Worldwide Revolution. And 20% says they don't believe in it. So... It's interesting, a lot of people have different opinions, but the majority of people fear that there will be an apocalypse. Maybe not something that will look like the biblical version of the apocalypse, but God has his own version. He says that human history will look a certain way and that it will have a definite end. Um, Martin Rees wrote a book entitled Our Final Hour a scientist warning how terror, error, and environmental disaster threaten humankind's future in this century on Earth and beyond. He says, The odds are no better than 50 50 that our present civilization on Earth will survive to the end of the present century. I guess you don't have to really read his book to know what his stance is on the events of human history. George Walt, who is a Nobel Prize winning scientist at Harvard, says, I think human life is threatened as never before in the history of this planet, not just by one peril, but by many perils that are all working together and coming to a head at about the same time. Of course, we don't have to be well informed about all of the the different factors that could put our planet into peril, but... I think all of us have a sense that we live in uncertain times, that the way things are going can't continue on forever. And the Bible would agree with that. The Bible says that unlike the Eastern view of history, human history isn't cyclical in nature. It's linear. In other words, there's a definite beginning and a definite end. And the end might actually surprise you the way it plays out. Now, let's look at Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, verse 1. Let's just read through the vision that he has, this dream, and then we'll do a little bit of interpretation. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. He saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea, probably talking about the Mediterranean, with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came out of the water, each were different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground, like a human being, and it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast, and I looked, it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, Get up, devour the flesh of many people. And thirdly, of these strange beasts, I saw one that looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. So not all of these animals are familiar animals. Some were kind of mythological in nature here. Then in verse 7, Daniel says, "...in my vision that night I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns." is the first portion of Daniel's dream that he has. So, let's try to interpret the dream. Now, luckily, you know, God doesn't sort of leave us speculating as to what all of this imagery entails. He actually tells us. He, later on in the chapter, actually reveals to Daniel what these these different beasts refer to. So, in verse 2 and 3, Daniel saw a great storm turning the surface of the great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then uh, four huge beasts came out of the water, each different from the others. First of all, he talks about the great sea, and this likely refers to the um, world population, humans. And we don't have to speculate about this because later in Daniel 7, verse 17, God reveals these few, four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. So the great sea represents humanity and the, and the nations. Then in verse 4, we're told that the first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. Now, this lion with eagle's wings probably refers to the king of Babylon. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And um, one of the reasons why we think this is because it says its wings were pulled off and it was given a human mind. If you were with us throughout our Daniel series, this probably refers to that event where Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, remember? And he was grazing like a cow in the middle of a field. And, um, you know, his hair grew really long. And then eventually, God restored him back to his place of prominence as the king of Babylon and gave him back his sanity. That's probably what this element is referring to. Also, Jeremiah 4, verse 7 actually uses this imagery of a lion with eagle's wings to describe Babylon. And interestingly, um, excavations in this area have uncovered uh, images of lions with eagles' wings. This is from the Louvre, um, and it is a relief that was found in the west courtyard of the palace in Susa, Iran, which would be where Babylon was located thousands of years ago. So it's pretty clear that this refers to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Then in verse 5, Daniel says, I saw a second beast that looked like a bear, is rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up and devour the flesh of many people. Now we know that the media Persian empire was a dominant empire, much bigger than Babylon, and yet lesser in quality. And this description of Rearing up on one side probably describes how the Persians overtook the Medes at one point, and that these three ribs that the bear devours probably refers to the major conquests of the Media Persian Empire. It corresponds with their conquest of the Lydian, Chaldean, and Egyptian empires under Cyrus. So this fits neatly with what we see in history. And also, Daniel in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, has another vision where he says a ram with two long horns standing beside, there was a ram with two long horns standing beside the river, and one of the horns was longer than the other one, very similar imagery to the bear, right, where one part of the bear is standing up, even though it had grown later than, uh, than the other one. And he plainly states in verse 20 that the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And this fits what we saw in Daniel chapter 2 when we studied that the last time we were in Daniel. So this corresponds to Daniel's uh, first interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then in verse 6, the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to the beast. This would fit real neatly with Alexander the Great, who in this incredible conquest pretty much dominated the entire known world at the time in about 10 years. And so the leopard, a very quick animal, I mean, it's not like you know, the fastest land animal on earth, but it's really fast. It would be if it had wings on its back. (laughs) But um, the point is that Daniel is trying to emphasize the speed in which this animal has. And Alexander, in his whirlwind campaign, was able to overtake, really, the known world up to the Indus Valley in India. So an amazing conquest. But at the completion of his campaign, he actually died. And upon his death... When they asked, who will be your successor? He said, I'll leave it to the strongest. And so what ended up happening was his four main generals ended up dividing his kingdom into four territories, which ended up representing the Macedonian Empire. And so that's what the four heads refer to. In Daniel 8, verse 21 and 22, again, Daniel has this vision this time of a shaggy male goat, which represents, he says, the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire, Alexander. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. So we're not speculating. And if this was written at the time in which Daniel was living, when when it was purported to have been written, This would have been hundreds of years before Alexander the Great actually showed up on the scene in history. So, this would have been a remarkable prediction. And here we see the four generals Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Cassander, who divided up the Macedonian Empire into the four kingdoms of Bithynia, Egypt, Syria, and Macedonia. All of this can be verified historically. Seven, in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, if you were with us again in in Daniel chapter 2, you'll notice many of the resemblances between this, this beast and the statue. Remember, this portion of the statue, the fourth portion of the statue, were the legs or the feet and toes made of iron. And this beast, we're told, has huge iron teeth. And that um, it also had ten horns, which would correspond with the ten toes of the statue. Now, most commentators of the Bible would say that this represents Rome. And this really fits the Roman Empire. You know, unlike the Greek Empire, where Alexander would conquer a territory, what he would do is he would Hellenize that area. In other words, he would enculturate it with Greek culture and try to absorb it, whereas the Romans would come in and they would completely destroy their opponents. One example... When they finally defeated Carthage in the Carthaginian Wars, they decided as a way to show anybody who decided they wanted to oppose Rome what would happen to them, they decided to essentially kill all of the people of Carthage. And they took all of the buildings through their buildings into the sea and they sowed salt into their ground to make sure that nothing grew again. And that was their way of sending a message to the nations. This is what, what happens when you mess with Rome. And so this fits the Roman Empire, this terrifying, dreadful beast that's very strong. In verse uh, 23, later on, Daniel explains this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth it will be different from all the others, and it will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. That would be characteristic of the Roman Empire. Now, the ten horns, as we explained last week, represent another world empire that arises out of Rome. And again, we're not left to try to imagine this or to speculate. In verse 24... Daniel tells us its 10 horns represent 10 kings who will rule that empire, a separate empire from the Roman empire, but similar. So let's try to see if we can try to put all this together. So remember in Daniel chapter two, we had the statue was, which was made of these different composites, right? You had the gold head, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. And Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold represented Babylon. This would correspond with the, with the lion with eagle's wings in our chapter here. Then you have the chest and arms of silver, which represent Persia, or media Persia, and again this would correspond with the bear with three ribs in its mouth. Then you have the belly and thighs of bronze which represents Greece which we learn in Daniel chapter 2 and this would correspond with the leopard with four heads and and wings. And finally you have Rome which rep- which corresponds to the legs of iron and this corresponds with the terrifying beast with iron teeth that we just read about here in Daniel 7. So we're starting to see this picture that comes together we're not left guessing, but really biblical prophecy gives us these uh, different correlations to give us confidence that we're not just making this up or we're just putting our interpretation into the Bible. Now, it's interesting. This... Um, really correlates well with another well-known passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 13 in the New Testament. We read in verse 1, And I saw a beast coming from out of the sea. And he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each had a blasphemous name. So, right away, you can see that there are elements that jump out at you that are very similar to the things that we just read. First of all, there was a beast... And that this beast comes up out of the sea and that it has ten horns. Um, Now, the seven heads, that seems like an addition. That's something different uh, from our prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. But then in verse 2, we read, "...the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion." The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So, it's interesting that this beast, singular, resembled the three other beasts in Daniel chapter 7, that there was a leopard, a bear, and a lion. So, there were resemblances of those different beasts all wrapped up in this one beast. Now, the question that kind of pops into my mind is, What about these seven heads? This seems dissimilar from the prophecy that we just read about in Daniel 7. And I think that the apostle John was giving us further revelation. That's one of the things that you see in biblical prophecy is that God gives sort of a faint picture but then gives a little bit more detail as he progressively reveals human history's end. Now luckily... Revelation chapter 17 explains this. Verse 9 through 11. Here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads. They are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. Okay. We're, 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 we're getting deep here, Okay. Don't, don't let the elastic snap here. Just hold on. Okay? So, first of all, he says that there are seven heads. And then he uses this cryptic phrase or clause. Five have fallen. One is. The other is yet to come. Okay. What does that even mean? All right? Let's try to break this down. These seven heads represent seven kingdoms, which at some point in time in history oppressed Israel. And we can easily identify this from human history. You have seven heads and seven kingdoms. Five have fallen, which would represent Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Okay? Remember, John the Apostle was writing this around AD 90. So these kingdoms had all been in the past. They disappeared by this time. Then you have one that is, which would represent the Roman Empire. And then he says another that is yet to come, which refers to this remnant of Rome that will come in the future. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about seven kingdoms. Um, Then he says... In verse 3, the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. And then in verse 7, he says, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So apparently, out of these seven heads or kingdoms, out of that will arise an eighth, another individual who will then become the final world conqueror. And apparently, he will achieve the kind of power that um, world rulers of the past have dreamt about. Because John tells us that he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. This is like four ways of saying the same thing. That means everyone minus no one. He's going to be the absolute world ruler. And so it's interesting that there's this individual, the beast, who shows up. And it's I think it, it looks like this beast figure is an individual, a human being, um, who in many ways seems to resemble that little horn that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go back to uh, Daniel 7, verse 8. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. And again, in verse 24 through 27, Daniel explains, Another king will arise different from the other ten. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. They They will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time... But then the court will pass judgment and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. So apparently there's this individual, a world ruler, who will gain power, who Daniel calls the little horn. But at some point, God will seize control from him and pass judgment upon him. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. So apparently, this hasn't happened yet, because clearly, we're not living in a state where God has established his rule. So this is a future event, and it refers to an individual who who will rule a future world empire. So let's try to make a little comparisons here, and, and see if we can connect these two. The little horn of Daniel 7 and the beast of Revelation 13 and 17. First of all, in Daniel 7, we read that after them, 10 kings will arise and another king will arise from them, different from the earlier ones. In Revelation 17, we're told that the 10 horns are 10 kings, but for one hour, they will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So this beast figure is actually different from those 10 kings. And so it appears that these two individuals are the same person. What about in Daniel 7, verse 25, he will try to change the set times and the laws for a time, times, and half a time, which most students of the Bible would agree is a Hebrew idiom for three and a half years, time, which is one year, Times, which is two years, and half a time. So three and a half years. In Revelation 13, verse 5, we're told that the beast was given authority for 42 months. Three and a half years. Very interesting. In Daniel 7, verse 21, Daniel says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, which, you know, saints just refers to those whom God has distinguished as his people. Doesn't mean like they're holier than most people. Um, It's that God carves them out as his people. And apparently this little horn will actually oppress and persecute God's people during this time. And then in Revelation 13, verse 7, we're told that it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Almost identical language. So... It seems like the career of the little horn and the beast seem to be aligning. And then we're told that God interrupts his reign to establish his eternal kingdom in Daniel 7, verse 11 and 26. And we see the same thing in Revelation that at the end of human history, God interrupts his reign and establishes his kingdom in Revelation 19. Also, this horn possessed eyes like that of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts, which biblical scholars believe that this phrase, that he had eyes like that of a man, refers to human intellect. So he was a a human being, not like some sort of symbolic figure of evil. And that the beast of Revelation, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, Revelation 13, verse 5. And so, we have a picture here uh, that seems to suggest these two individuals are actually the same. Which I think is very interesting. Let's see if we can try to catalog the beast's career based on Daniel chapter 7 and also what we read from Revelation 13 and 17. First of all, He rises to power in an empire made of ten nations. That's made clear in Daniel 2, 7, and also Revelation 13 and 17. Secondly, he establishes a truly one world government. I think this is pretty interesting because it's not like human rulers of the past haven't wanted to try to uh, dominate the world. It's just that they haven't had the capability to do this. And yet, this individual, the beast, as he's referred to, is able to do what nobody else has been able to do. Capture the attention and the affection of the entire human race. Now, you know, when you think of the beast, or, you know, sometimes he's referred to as the Antichrist, you know, we think of this really evil-looking person who just looks nefarious, you know. You're just like, he he just looks like a bad dude. You need to stay away from him. But actually, um, it's very clear that the beast possesses incredible charisma. And that he's able, through his personality, to draw people to him. And that really the entire world worships him, as we'll see. Um, You know, this thirst for world domination isn't anything new. But it's realized in the career of the beast. Now, okay, one of the things we need to think about here is that in our world today, the economic, political, and ecological factors that we're facing now, I think create conditions that are ripe for a one-world government. For example, Henry Wendt, who, you know, was a chairman of... uh, Smith Klein Beecham, which was a transnational company, wrote this book called Global Embrace, which is kind of a funny title. It kind of sounds like Earth Hug, right? <laughs> he says, The emergence of a full-blown global marketplace in which goods, money, and people flow easily back and forth across national borders around the world comes as a shock. Suddenly, the volume of world trade has, has reached staggering proportions. The world is, di- uh, is integrating at a dizzying pace. National borders grow fuzzier and, in many cases, more irrelevant with each passing day. I mean, think about the number of purchases that you have made overseas online this year. You know, I see many of you are wearing uh, jerseys and sports equipment. You probably got that from China somewhere, <laughs> AliExpress or something, right? And so the point is that it's really easy to be able to get merchandise and goods from different countries. Whereas, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 years ago was a lot more difficult. But he's describing a picture that really is normal to us today. That national borders are fuzzy, that that we can get whatever we want from other countries. Um, This is from Keyes and McKnight who wrote an article called Corporate Clout, the Influence of the World's Largest 100 Economic Entities, says in 2009, Walmart stores had revenues exceeding the respective GDPs of 174 countries, including Sweden, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and employed over 2 million people, more than the entire population of Qatar. If it was a country, it would be the 22nd largest in the world. But yeah, I mean, you know, you have these multinational countries or uh, corporations that, that, that straddle several different continents. And one of the real problems that you run into is that countries can't regulate these companies. Uh, this is from Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist and former chief economist of World Bank. And uh, he wrote uh, the book called Making Globalization Work. He says, in its fiscal year in 2005, Walmart's revenues were 285 billion, larger than the combined GDP of sub-Saharan Africa. These corporations are not only rich but politically powerful. If governments decide to tax or regulate them in, in ways they don't like, they threaten to move elsewhere. There's always another country that will welcome their tax revenues, jobs and foreign investment, and also cheaper labor. We need, they say. he says, international frameworks and international courts as necessary for the, few, uh, the smooth functioning of the global economy as federal courts and national laws are for national econ- economies. In other words, he's saying we need some sort of uh, global control over these multinational corporations. We need, we need stricter regulation across borders. Alexander went professor of political science at the Ohio State University, says in his article, Why a World State is Inevitable, my guess is that a world state will emerge within 100 years. And he uh, points out that, you know, you'll see that there's often this this cycle of um, instability that then turns into stability. And he points out that we're in a state of instability right now. He says, as long as a structure exists that can command and enforce a collective response to threats, a world state could be compatible with the existence of national armies. You think about the threat of terrorism that faces not only all of Western Europe, it also threatens North America and many other countries. You could see a collective arise as as a way to, uh, as a defense against terrorism. It would not even require a world government if by this we mean a unitary actor with one person at the top whose individual decisions are final. In short, as long as it has a common power, legitimacy, sovereignty, and subjectivity, we should not prejudice the uh, the form a world state might take. The EU is already not far from meeting those requirements on a regional level. Were a completed EU-like structure to be a globalized, it would be a world state. And um, just recently in the news, we heard that uh, the EU has uh, actually formed a standing army. And so, uh, some of the research that I had from Daniel chapter 2 is a little bit older, but apparently they've made progress since then. Also, uh, you think about some of the ecological crises that we face For example, the shortage of water in the world. Here's some interesting statistics. Of all the water on earth, only 2.5% is fresh water and is suitable for drinking. Of the 2.5%, almost three quarters is frozen in the glaciers of Antarctica and Greenland, for now. And only 0.007% of all water on earth is directly accessible for human use, like lakes, rivers, and aquifers, And this output is decreasing each year. Of course, salt water can be desalinized for human drinking, but requires energy-intensive treatment plants. For example, in the Middle East, what they're doing is they're actually subsidizing water for the people by selling off their oil wholesale. Because they know that if there's a water shortage crisis in their country, there's going to be a revolt. And they can't keep up. It's a huge problem. Jorgen Randers wrote a book called 2052, A Global Forecast for the Next 40 Years. He's a Norwegian professor of climate studies. He says, all in all, this will mean bigger governments in the decades ahead, a larger role for the state, higher taxes, and a larger share of investments in the GDP. The prime example is the climate challenge. It is truly a global problem. The temperature will rise everywhere, irrespective of who is the source of the emissions. In other words... It's not good enough for just our country to deal with our emissions. There needs to be some sort of collective regulation over emissions throughout the world if we want to try to, uh, you know, solve this problem. And so you could see why a a one world government would easily solve that problem. Also, we know that uh, from Revelation that the beast will be able to control what people buy and sell worldwide. In Revelation 13, verse 16 and 17, we're told that he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark. Could you imagine anything in the ancient world that would even fit this at all? I mean, you know, they they were trading silver nuggets and, and coins. I mean... This describes a cashless society where you could make transactions, you know, electronically. I mean, something like this would have been unheard of back when John was living in eighty, ninety, 90 And yet today, it's not that far-fetched to think that the government could control all of your spending. In fact, some of you are really paranoid that that's going to happen. Interestingly, the FDA approved in 2004 a computer chip for humans uh, called the VeriChip, now called Positive ID. And in this article, it says, with the pinch of a syringe, the microchip is inserted under the skin in a procedure that takes less than 20 minutes and leaves no stitches. Silently and invisibly, the dormant chip stores a code that releases patient-specific information with a scanner when they pass over it. Um... You know, India, in 2010, launched a project to ID 1.2 billion people, according to this Wall Street Journal article. We read, India's vaunted tech savvy is being put to the test this week as the country embarks on a daunting mission, assigning a unique 12-digit number to each of its 1.2 billion people. Now, you'd be thinking to yourself, why would any sane human being do this? Register themselves to the government like this. Well, they go on to say that the project which which seeks to collect fingerprint and iris scans from all residents and store them in a massive central database of unique IDs is considered by many specialists the most technologically and logistically complex national identification effort ever attempted. Officials say early data already shows how unique IDs could reduce corruption at the state's 43,000 ration shops, which distributes subsidized food to the poor. So to us, this makes no sense, but if you're a poor person and you show up to your ration shop in your local village and it turns out somebody stole your ration, that would give you really the motivation to get this ID, right? Right? At one shop, records show rations were being delivered to 330 families, but after the IDs were rolled out, only 203 families claimed benefits by placing their finger on a scanner at the shop. State officials suspect the owner had been making up fake accounts to divert some of the food into the black market. This guy, a 35-year-old resident who earns $50 a month in a local government job, said he isn't concerned about privacy. He just hopes the ID will help him open a bank account, get a driver's license, which he has had difficulty obtaining thus far and maintains his benefits when he goes out of state for work. This will help me prove my identity wherever I go. So, you know, we're thinking from our Western perspective where it's assumed that we have all of these things. But when you don't have these basic things, the idea that you would get a, a, you know, an, an ID to track you sounds really appealing. Also, his reign contains a religious dimension. He, first of all, claims to be God. In Revelation 13.8, we're told that all who dwell on earth will worship him. Apparently, um, one of his associates, who John refers to as the false prophet, will actually perform miraculous signs and wonders in order to give him credibility. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 4. Paul calls the beast the man of lawlessness and says that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Apparently, at the time when he rises to power, the temple will be around and he will actually declare himself to be God in God's temple. Now, um, apotheosis, which is this deification of human beings, is, is totally common in totalitarian states. We see this in ancient history. For example, Nebuchadnezzar, who erected that statue. Obviously, that was symbolic of him. And he compelled all of the people to worship him. The Roman emperors throughout history, many of them claimed to be de- uh, de- deities. And, um, you know, even in our own modern day, you know, Kim Jong-il, the former dictator of North, North Korea, declared that his father, uh, Kim Song il was actually the eternal father and leader of North Korea. And so, newlyweds, after they get married, have to go and pay a dedication to his shrine after they get married. Um, we see, too, that um, during the Nazi regime, Hitler actually, through his speeches and in his propaganda, made claims or at least illusions, to be a messiah-like figure. Joseph Goebbels, um, who was the minister of propaganda in, in Nazi Germany, in one of his broadcasts said, Germany has been transformed into a great house of the Lord where the Fuhrer, as our mediator, stands before the throne of God. And so many people worshipped him as though he was a god. Also, he makes great boasts. Uh, he claims incredible things. And again, this is not uncommon among dictators and totalitarian rulers. For example, Kim Jong Il, uh, while he was alive, uh, claimed that, during, uh, and he must have doctored this. That official North Korean records suggest that when he was born at the mountain, or the foot of Mount Paektu, which is North Korea's sacred mountain, on February 16, 1942, a double rainbow appeared and a comet comet, traversed the sky. That's interesting because according to Soviet records, he was born in Siberia in 1941. (laughs) According to a USA Today article, the North Korean Ministry of Information claimed that he had 11 holes in one in his first game of golf. (laughs) In fact, his 17 bodyguards personally testified that he shot a 38-under round of golf. According to The Guardian, in 2000, a new food invented by Kim Jong-il called gogiabang was introduced to North Koreans. It was described as double bread with meat, but took on an uncanny appearance of a conventional hamburger. So Kim jong Eel claimed to invent the hamburger. <laughs> also, he's going to blaspheme God and his temple. Uh, we will we, uh, we'll talk more about that next time. He lives in a day when Israel exists as a national, uh, nation regathered from around the world. This is really interesting because for 2000, nearly 2,000 years, Israel didn't even exist as a nation state. In AD 70, the Romans overtook the Jews and completely dispersed them. And they did not become a nation state until uh, the 1940s. And so um, it's, it's very interesting, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at this next week. But um, this is a remarkable thing that the Bible predicts. Number eight, he will oppress God's followers. We read about that in Revelation thirteen seven, And he precipitates a war so ferocious that if God didn't interrupt it, all life on earth would end. Not hard to imagine something like that happening today. Finally, during his reign, God ends history as we know it and establishes his kingdom. And, you know, this is really where the narrative picks up in Daniel 7. We're told that this little horn had eyes like human human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Um, And he says, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like pure wool. And he sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend to him. Then the court began its session and the books were open. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by the fire. So apparently in the midst of the beast, the little horn spewing out these boasts, God drags him into the heavenly tribunal and tosses him into the fire and shuts him up finally. Verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Now, this term son of man, it's actually familiar if you've ever read the the gospels. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man 84 times. And so Jesus claims that he is the son of man who will rule earth and establish God's justice forever. And finally, he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And so there's a hopeful end to this sorry part of history, the climax of human history. Let's draw a couple conclusions. I think... The first question we need to ask ourselves is, is it plausible that a one-world government could arise? I think we know the answer to that. And some of us are frankly terrified at that thought, that something like this could happen even in our own day. Another question is, is it really plausible that a government could control all financial transactions? Again, totally plausible. And so, it raises the question, you know, we may be living at a time when God may be ready to establish his kingdom. And the question is, where do we stand with God? Because really, the only security available is that which the Son of Man offers. You know, some of you may not want to admit this but you're terrified of the thought that our world is spinning out of control. And let me just tell you something. There's nothing you can do to save it. There's nothing humanity can do to salvage it. But God says that he is sovereign and that he is giving us an opportunity to turn to him and to be a part of the eternal kingdom that he will establish. And we can do that through Jesus Christ. Next time, we're going to look at one of the most incredible modern fulfillments of biblical prophecy. So if you are new, I would encourage you to come and check that out. Actually, the next couple weeks, Dan- Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. I know that uh, many of us are terrified of, a uh, you know, Oppressive totalitarian ruler rising to power and oppressing us in the world. Um, we've seen it happen throughout the world. It's not like that's uncommon. And um, we look forward to the day when that will no longer be a threat, when you will finally establish your just kingdom on earth and that we can live in harmony and peace with one another and most importantly, live in peace with you. And uh, we know that the way for us to experience that peace with you comes directly from what you did for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so um, I pray, Lord, for anybody who um, just might be pondering uh, whether or not they should turn to you in their hearts and receive that peace, that they would do that courageously. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.